This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF. When Justice is Aborted, Biblical Standards for Nonviolent Resistance, Gary North, Dominion Press, Fort Worth, Texas, copyright 1989 by Gary North. Introduction. Let me offer you a series of scenarios. All of them are drawn from church history. Christians in the real world had to make decisions in the light of their faith. What decisions would you have made? What decisions should you have made? The year is 150 A.D. You live in the city of Rome. Roman civil law says that the father is the supreme ruler in his family. He has the legal right to abandon unwanted infants that are born in his household. The common practice is for those infants to be abandoned outside the gates of the city. It has become the practice of Christians to pick up these abandoned babies and take them home, to rear them as their own children. The Roman civil authorities have declared this practice illegal. You're walking home and find one of these babies. Should you obey the civil law and ignore the child, or should you break the law by taking it home? The year is 298. Emperor Diocletian's persecution of the church is in full force. The civil authorities are rounding up all copies of the Bible from Christian churches. You're a pastor of a local church. The authorities learn of this and come to your home, demanding that you turn over any copy of the New Testament which you in fact do possess. You have copies of several epistles and two of the Gospels hidden in your home. They ask if you own such books. Should you tell them the truth? Christians for centuries disobeyed these laws. In the year 313, Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, declaring religious toleration for Christianity. The year is 1941. You're a Christian living in German-occupied Holland. You've been approached by a Jewish family seeking refuge from the Nazis. It is illegal to hide Jews, but they ask you to hide them. Should you tell them to look for refuge elsewhere, since you do not want to break the law? The year is 1944. The Nazis have been informed that all Christians are required by God to tell the truth no matter what the circumstances. They have believed this story. So they are going from door to door asking every known church member if he knows where any Jews are being hid by others. You're a faithful Christian. Know that your non-Christian neighbor is illegally hiding a Jew in the attic. German soldiers come to your door and ask you point blank. Do you know of anyone in this neighborhood who is hiding Jews? If you say nothing, they will know you know. They will arrest you for withholding evidence. and They will also conduct a detailed search of the neighborhood. Should you lie, tell them the truth, or remain silent? Christians in Holland disobeyed the Nazis throughout World War II. On April 30th, 1945, Adolf Hitler committed suicide in Berlin. It is Thursday, December 1, 1955. You live in the city of Montgomery, Alabama. You're a black woman coming home from a hard day's work. You're sitting on a bus in the front section, which is legal as long as no white person is required by crowding to sit next to you. By city law and local bus line rules, blacks are not allowed to sit parallel to a white. The bus fills up. A white man is standing in the, at the front of the bus because there are no more seats available. The bus driver tells you to get up and move to the back of the bus. A white person needs the seat. You're required to get up and let him sit there. You'll have to stand at the back of the bus, but you've paid your fine and your fare and your local taxes support the municipal bus line. Should you stand up and move to the back of the bus? It is Sunday, December 4th. You're a black person living in Montgomery. You learn that a lady named Rosa Parks 
was arrested the day before for refusing to give up her seat and stand in the back of the bus. You hear that blacks are organizing a boycott of the local bus company until the seating rule is abolished. They are saying, if we can't sit wherever we want to on a first-come, first-seat basis, we won't spend our money to ride the bus. We, we should be treated like any other passengers. The boycott will begin on Monday morning. Should you join the boycott and refuse to ride the bus? It is Monday, December 12th. The leaders of the boycott are mainly ministers. The boycott is working. The buses are 75% empty. But the local authorities have discovered an obscure state law that makes it illegal to run a boycott against any state municipal service. You're a black person who owns an automobile. Many blacks have joined the boycott and are seeking alternative ways to get to work in the morning and back home at the end of the day. You're asked by a representative of the boycotting group to drive people to work and back home in the evening. The city has said this is illegal since there's a city ordinance requiring a minimum fee for all taxi service and you'll be regarded as a taxi service should you agree to drive the people anyway. Rosa Parks and the Blacks of Montgomery defied the law. On December 17, 1956, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear a protest by the city of Montgomery against the federal appellate court's ruling that the segregated seating was illegal. Bus segregation in and near Montgomery on December 21, 1956, a little over a year after Mrs. Park sat tight and broke the law. The year, the year is this year. You know that a local abortion clinic is killing unborn babies. You know that the civil government has authorized such murder if it is performed by a monopolistic, state-licensed physician. Picketing has been tried. It has not stopped the murdering from going on. Christians have decided that if a large number of them block the doorway to the clinic, it will make it more difficult for mothers to murder their infants. It will lead to financial losses for the clinic. It also could become a tremendous media event in which the absolute brutality of abortion is reflected in the brutality of the local police against protesters. But to block the doorway is an invasion of the clinic's private property. The protests have begun, and the police have started arresting those who blocked the doorway. Should you approve of the protest or not? If you approve, should you join the protest or not? If you suspect that the police will escalate their physical violence against protesters, should you join the protest? If you get arrested, should you later insist on a jury trial or meekly forfeit the bail you posted in order to be released? If no Christians protest, will the abortion laws ever be changed? What if a civil law is biblically immoral? The civil government could declare a particular act illegal, which in God's eyes is legal or moral. The civil government could also declare something legal, which in God's eyes is illegal or immoral. How can those under the authority of the specific civil government in question persuade the civil authorities to bring the law into harmony with God's law? The first step is for Christians to accept the fact that there really is such a thing as God's law. They must first seek explicitly biblical answers to the question, by what judicial and moral standard? Some Christians must decide which doctrines and practices are most important in God's hierarchy of values and requirements. The color of the drapes is less important than the purity of the doctrine. Most Christians say that they believe this, but what about applied doctrine? What about a question like abortion? What if a church preaches sound doctrine, but attempts to stay neutral about abortion? There is no neutrality in God's world, of course, but there is a lot of attempted neutrality. 
there's surely also a a great deal of indifference. Christians must decide which unjust laws to obey and which to disobey, since no one can fight every aspect of civil injustice at one time. We are creatures. No one has sufficient time or resources to fight every possible battle. There must be a division of labor and specialized protests by various Christian groups. The third step in deciding what must be done to persuade the civil magistrates is a question of tactics. Either cease obeying the law as a means of establishing a judicial test case, or else seek to change the law by political means, and obey a bad law as a matter of public relations until all legal political efforts to abolish it have failed. Both approaches have been used in history. The former approach is by far the most common, obviously so in non-democratic societies, but even in democratic societies. The English Revolution of 1688 and the American Revolution of 1776 were both fought to establish the right of the people to escape bad rulers and bad laws. Someone usually must disobey a law if it is to be changed. The legitimacy of laws as established or rejected in the courts. If the law has been issued in the name of the sovereignty of the people, then the best way to persuade the legal spokesman of the people that they have misrepresented the people is for the people to disobey the law. Someone has to begin this process of disobedience. When he does, it will not be clear to everyone that the people are to speak. Only time will tell. If God says that a law is wrong, then Christians know that eventually, if only at the day of judgment. The law will be changed. But God usually persuades civil magistrates of the immoral nature of their laws long before the day of final judgment. He first destroys their power in history, and sometimes by destroying their nation. The Old Testament is filled with examples of this. A Christian who publicly disobeys a law that is condemned by the Bible is taking a major step in delaying the wrath of God on his society. Disobedience to bad law is therefore an act of patriotism, but it will be criticized as an act of anarchism. How can Christians distinguish between legislation defying acts of anarchism and legislation defying acts of patriotism? only by going to the Bible to test the spirits of disobedience. Above all, we must understand that the Bible is a covenant document. To understand the difference between good and evil, we must understand what God's covenant is, the covenant structure. To get the right answers, we first need to ask the right questions. For a long, long time, Christians and Jews have had the correct questions right under their noses, but no one paid any attention. The questions concerning lawful government are organized in the Bible around a single theme, the covenant. Most Christians and Jews have heard the word covenant. They regard themselves and even occasionally each other as covenant people. They are taught from their youth about God's covenant with Israel and how this covenant extends or doesn't extend to the Christian church. But many people who use the word don't really understand it. If you go to a Christian or a Jew and ask him to outline the basic features of the biblical covenant, he will not be able to do it rapidly or perhaps even believably. Ask two Jews or two Christians who talk about the covenant and compare the answers. The answers will not fit very well. In 1985, Pastor Ray Sutton made an astounding discovery. He was thinking about biblical symbols and he raised the question of two New Testament covenant symbols, baptism and communion. This raised the question of the Old Testament's covenant symbols, circumcision and Passover. What did they have in common? Obviously, the covenant. 
But what precisely is the covenant? Is it the same in both testaments? Covenants. He began rereading some books by theologian Meredith G. Klein. In several books, Klein mentioned the structure of the book of Deuteronomy. He argued that the book's structure, in fact, parallels the ancient pagan world special documents that are known today as suzerain treaties. These treaties were imposed by conquering kings on defeated kings who were offered the opportunity to become vassals of the conqueror. That triggered something in Sutton's mind. Klein discusses the outline of these treaties in several places. In some places, he says they have five sections. In other places, he indicates that they may have had six or even seven. It was all somewhat vague, so Sutton began sat down with Deuteronomy to see what the structure is, and he found five parts. Then he looked at another book in the Bible that is known to be divided into five parts, Matthew. He believed that he has found the same structure. Then he went to other books, including some Pauline epistles. He found it there, too. When he, discovered his, when he discussed his findings in a Wednesday evening Bible study, author David Chilton instantly recognized the same structure in the book of Revelation. He had been working on this manuscript for well over a year, and he had it divided into four parts. Immediately, he went back to his computer and shifted around the manuscript sections electronically. The results of his restructuring can be read in his marvelous commentary on the book of Revelation, The Days of Vengeance, Fort Worth, Texas, Dominion Press, 1987. Here, then, is the five-point structure of the biblical covenant as developed by Sutton in his path-breaking book that you may prosper, dominion by covenant. Tyler, Texas, Institutes for Christian Economics, 1987. 1. The transcendence yet presence of God. Hierarchy slash representation. Government. 3. Ethics slash law. Dominion. 4. Oath birth sanctions. Blessings and cursings. 5. Succession slash inheritance. Continuity. Simple, isn't it? The acronym is Theos. Simple, though it is, it has many important implications. Here is the God-revealed key that unlocks the structure of every human government. Here is the biblically mandated model of government that Christians can use to analyze church, state, family, and numerous other non-covenantal but contractual institutions. The first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, conform to this five-point outline. Genesis tells us who God is, the sovereign creator who is transcendent, yet fully present with his people. Exodus tells about God's hierarchical government, especially in Exodus 18, with Moses as God's representative. Leviticus sets forth the laws of the sacrifices. Numbers tells the story of God's sanctions against the disobedience of Israel and also against the pagan nations that Israel battled against. Finally, Deuteronomy is the second reading of God's law just before the second generation entered the, the land of Canaan to possess the inheritance promised to Abraham. I discuss all this in greater detail in the introduction to my commentary on Genesis, the Dominion Covenant, Genesis, second edition, Institute for Christian Reconstruction Economics, 1987. This five-point model can be used to unlock the long-debated structure of the Ten Commandments, 1 through 5, with a parallel 6 through 10. I spotted this almost as soon as Sutton described his discovery, just as I was finishing my economic commentary on the Ten Commandments, the Sinai Strategy, 
Economics, and the Ten Commandments, Institute for Christian Economics, 1986. I outline this covenantal structure of the Ten Commandments in the preface. James Jordan has demonstrated that the book of Leviticus also follows this five-point structure in his book, Covenant Sequence in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Institute for Christian Economics, 1989. You may not be confident that the Bible really teaches such a view of the covenant. One way to test the thesis is to examine the rival covenants that are described in the Bible. If they are also structured in the same way, then we have additional evidence that this structure is universal. Covenant versus Covenant The book of Exodus is the premier book of the covenant, Exodus 24-7. It, is th- it therefore bears the marks of all five aspects of the biblical covenant model. The first chapter of Exodus indicates that a war between rival covenants was the heart of the dispute between God and Pharaoh. Pharaoh attempted to impose his own alternative covenant on the Hebrews. It too had the same five aspects, and his confrontation reveals all five. This covenant structure appears twice in the first chapter, a double witness. The first presentation of the Pharaoh's covenant program appears in the Bible's description of his general rule over the Hebrews. Transcendence slash presence. The book begins with the advent of a false god the Pharaoh who had forgotten Joseph, Exodus 1.8. Second, hierarchy. This false god immediately establishes a tyrannical hierarchy over the people of Israel with taskmasters to inflict them with their burdens, verse 11. Third, law. He forces them to build treasure cities for him, verse 11. But their afflictions led to even greater growth in their population, verse 12. Threatening Pharaoh's program of dominion, sanctions, He announced a program of infanticide, verse 16. Fifth, inheritance. He was seeking to destroy their inheritance in the land by killing their male children, but allowing the females to to survive and attempt to capture the inheritance of Israel through future concubinage. Israel would marry, Egypt would marry Israel, God's bride, steal the the bride's God-granted dowry and declare her a concubine. The second presentation of Pharaoh's covenant program appears in the Bible's description of his enforcement of the infanticide decree. To achieve this program of stealing the Hebrews' inheritance, Pharaoh, the self-proclaimed sovereign, assigned this task of infanticide to representative agents, the Hebrew midwives, hierarchy. He gave them a command, destroy the newborn males, law. They disobeyed the command, but instead of being punished by Pharaoh, negative sanction, God blessed them, positive sanction, and the Hebrew people multiplied inheritance. In response to the false Egyptian covenant, the sovereign God of Israel announced to Moses that he was with his people, for he had seen their affliction and had heard their cries, Exodus 3.7. He then raised up Moses, his representative agent, to serve as the earthly leader of the nation, hierarchy. He gave Moses his law. law. The people made an oath to God, which they broke, and God brought sanctions against them. Oath slash sanctions. They then repented, renewed the covenant, and built the tabernacle, which their sons later carried into the promised land, the lawful inheritance which had been promised to Abraham, inheritance slash continuity. Thus we see that the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh was really a confrontation between rival covenants. They both had the same five-point model, the same confrontation 
between God's covenant and Satan's rival covenant is going on today. We live in an era of humanism. Humanism is a simple enough religion. The humanist believes the following. One, man owns the earth. Original ownership, meaning the original title to the earth, belongs to collective mankind. It is his to use as he pleases. Two, man the creator rules God the creature. Man the creature rules God the creator. In fact, man is the creator, for he alone understands and controls nature through science. He runs the show. 3. Man therefore makes the rules, which means that an elite group of men make their rules for everyone else. Man proposes and man disposes. He is he alone is to subdue the earth. 4. Man is the sovereign judge of the universe. He answers only to man, which means, of course, that the vast majority of men answer to a handful of other men, the elite, scientific, political, and bureaucratic. And five, the future belongs to autonomous, self-ruled man, meaning to those people who worship man as God. Autonomous man inherits the earth. Christians disagree with each of the above humanistic assertions. One, Original ownership belongs to God. God, not man, creates, created, owns, and controls the earth. Two, the creator rules the creature. God is sovereign. God has delegated subordinate ownership to mankind. God is in charge. Three, God therefore has made the rules, laws. Men prosper or fail in terms of their disobedience or obedience to these rules. 4. God judges man in terms of his law. Men are responsible for God to abide by his rules. Man prospers and disposes only within the decree and plan of God. 5. The future belongs to God and God's people. Those who are meek before God will inherit the earth. Here we have it. Two rival religions, two rival views of God with the earth as the historical battlefield. The religion of God and the religion of man are locked in a deadly combat. But the humanists have had a much clearer view of the true nature of the battle. They have planned it for far longer than the Christians have. The Covenant Lawsuit The prophets of the Old Testament were authorized agents of God. They were his prosecuting attorneys. They brought a covenant lawsuit against the nation. They reminded the people, the nobles and the king, of the covenant that God had made with their forefathers at Sinai. Then they reminded the listeners of the stipulations, laws, of that original covenant. They pointed to the obvious violations of these stipulations in their day. Then they warned everyone of the fact that God, the true king of Israel, would bring his negative sanctions against the nation. War, pestilence, famine. All these negative sanctions had been spelled out in the original covenant document. Deuteronomy 28, 15-68 Finally, the prophets called the nation to repentance. Promising the blessing of God. Sanction, positive sanctions. Deuteronomy 28, 1-14. If the nation did repent. Understand, these sanctions, positive and negative, blessings and cursings, were applied corporately to the whole nation. They were not simply sanctions against personal sins. When the, the two parts of the nation were sent into captivity, righteous people as well as evil people were taken out of the land. This office of prophet culminated in the person of Jesus Christ. His cousin John had brought a preliminary covenant lawsuit against Israel, 
He then baptized Jesus. From that point on, Jesus brought the main covenant lawsuit against Israel. John was executed when he brought God's personal covenant lawsuits against Herod and his wife. When Israel refused to repent, God raised up his church. Not only was the church required to bring covenant lawsuit against Israel, it was required to bring the same lawsuit against the whole world. This is why Paul was raised up to go to the Gentiles, Acts 13, and why Peter was sent to the Roman centurion, Acts 10. What this means is that the covenant that God made with Israel has now been extended by God to the whole world. God today calls all men to repentance. All people are now clearly under the ethical terms of the covenant. God's Bible reveals laws. Thus, it is the task of Christians to warn people of the nature of this covenant, a sovereign God, a hierarchical system of governments, biblical laws, God's sanctions in history and eternity, and God's system of inheritance and disinheritance. In short, Christians are to preach the gospel. But we are not just to preach it verbally, we are to preach it by our deeds. God requires word and deed evangelism. One of these visible deeds is our resistance to publicly sanctioned evil. This is as true today as it was during the Old Testament. Stages of Biblical Resistance The Bible reveals numerous cases of lawful righteous protest against civil authority. They're not all of the same intensity. I present here a series of steps that might seem that seem to me to be progressive depending on time and place. Maybe that under different circumstances, several of them might be interchangeable, but this guide at least serves as an introduction to the question of the stages of lawful resistance. There's the case of an individual who knows that a law is wrong and who protests verbally. He obeys it, but he warns the civil magistrate that it is an immoral law and recommends that it be repealed. Joab did this when David insisted that the people be numbered in a military census, even though there was no battle scheduled. 2 Samuel 24, 3-4 For this sin, God sent a plague on Israel that killed 70,000 people. 2 Samuel 24, 25 This story affirms the biblical doctrine of representative hierarchical government. The king sinned, and the people suffered the terrible consequences, physical sanctions. But Joab, who had protested, second, the protester protests verbally and refuses to obey the order. The protester then voluntarily suffers the punishment. This is what the three young men did when Nebuchadnezzar told them to worship the image or suffer death in the fiery furnace. Daniel 3. Third, the protester rebels against civil authority, warning the civil ruler of the evil that he is doing, but then leaves the geographic jurisdiction of the civil government. This is what Elijah did when he warned the king about God's coming judgment of drought and then hid in the city of Zarephath, in the nation of Sidon, 1 Kings 17. Fourth, the protester refuses to comply with the law. He recognizes that there is no institutional way to protest, and because of his unique position in being able to deflect the evil consequences of the law, he or she adopts a strategy of deception rather than personal immigration. The best examples in the Bible are the are the are, of this approach of the deception of Pharaoh by the Hebrew midwives, Exodus 1, and the deception of Jericho's authorities by Rahab, Joshua 2. The people as a corporate assembly intervene and tell the ruler, executive, that he will not be allowed to bring sanctions in order to enforce a bad law. The people of Israel did this when they refused to allow Saul to execute Jonathan 
for having eaten some honey during a battle, which Saul had previously prohibited. 1 Samuel 14, 43-46 A God-ordained protester warns the representatives of the people and challenges them to rebel against lawfully constituted authority. This is what Elijah did when he directed the assembled representatives of Israel to kill the 850 priests of Baal and Asherah after God had publicly intervened in history to prove that these priests were false priests. 1 Kings 18, verse 40. Seventh, the God-ordained lower official joins with other officials and revolts against unlawful central government after a series of official protests. This is what Jeroboam did when, when Rehoboam... This is what Jeroboam did when Rehoboam, Solomon's son, imposed harsh tax laws, or possibly a system of forced labor. Jeroboam created a new nation, the northern kingdom of Israel. So Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day, 1 Kings 12.19. We should also consider the question of lawful resistance against a military invader. Ahud the judge slew King Eglon of Moab, through the use of deception. Judges 3, 15-26. He then called the nation to a military revolt. Judges 3, 27-30. Similarly, Jael deceived the fleeing Canaanite general Sisera, even though her husband, a higher covenantal authority, had made some sort of peace treaty with Sisera. Judges 4, 17. She rammed a peg through his temple, Till it nailed him to the ground. Judges 4.21 A graphic symbolic fulfillment of God's promise to crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15 For this act of successful military aggression and household covenantal rebellion, Deborah praised J.L. in her song of victory. Judges 5.24-27 There is no indication in the Bible that any of these acts was morally or judicially improper. And in most cases, God granted visible positive sanctions as rewards for such action. Anyone who says that resistance and even revolution are not morally and judicially justified in the Bible has to ignore or deny a great deal of scripture and also renounce the legitimacy of the English Revolution of 1688 and American Revolution of 1776, as well as renounce the various anti-Nazi national underground resistance efforts during World War II. Reader, are you ready to do this? Conclusion. Many questions surrounding the big picture of lawful resistance by Christians against immoral civil laws can be answered by a careful examination of the biblical covenant model. I have divided this book into five chapters, with each chapter structured in terms of one of the five points. I hope Christians will better understand what they're being called to do in this age of seemingly triumphant secular humanism. If Christians cannot see the life and death issue of abortion, then they are not prepared to exercise dominion in any area of civil government. R.J. Rushdoony wrote a little pamphlet called Abortion is Murder in 1971, two years before the Supreme Court handed down the infamous Roe v. Wade decision. Few Christians noticed the pamphlet. Two years later, in 1973, Rush Duty's Institutes of Biblical Law was published. This book identified the historical background of modern abortion. 
Abortion is a revival of a moral issue that brought Christians into conflict with ancient pagan Rome. There was no reconciliation possible between Rome and the church, between the pagan Caesar and Christ, only settled when Christians took over the Roman Empire. In biblical law, all life is under God and his law. Under Roman law, the parent was the source and lord of life. The father could abort the child or kill it after birth. The power to abort and the power to kill go hand in hand, whether in parental or in state hands. When one, when one is claimed, the other soon, is also soon claimed. To restore abortion as a legal right is to restore judicial or parental murder. Christians must wake, make up their minds. Are they going to assent to legalize murder or oppose it publicly? Are they going to break the civil law as a means of challenging it as a test case? Are they going to allow humanists to continue to authorize the murder of babies? The U.S. Supreme Court has overturned its own prior rulings at least 150 times. Are Christians ready to give the court an opportunity to do it again? I have filled this book with quotations from the Bible. This is necessary since so many Christian critics of social action and especially direct confrontation insist, legitimately I might add, that those who propose nonviolent protests present an explicit, bibli explicitly biblical case for what they're doing. While I draw upon examples from history, I use them only as examples. I am making a biblical case for civil disobedience, not a natural law case or a historical case. The Bible is my sole authoritative standard. This means that those Christians who want to understand my arguments are going to be required to read carefully my sometimes lengthy extracts from the Bible. If they are unwilling to do this, they are prepared to be neither critics nor advocates of my position. We must count the cost of what we are doing. Understanding the biblical basis of our actions is part of the cost. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.